A reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. Jesus taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil, and it sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so they did not bear grain. Still others fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God, and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Here, and I'm so glad you're here with us as we're continuing to try to change someone's mind about something. When it seems like no matter how much evidence you have, no matter how many is it that we're still having any kind of a discussion about Chick fil A versus pies. <laughs> the Lord loves spice, that's just the way it goes. But still, people argue, people argue, doesn't matter how much evidence you have. Well, you should know. This is actually a psychological phenomenon that's been pretty well documented. It's called the backfire effect. And uh, researchers at the University of Southern California's Brain and Creativity Institute studied the brains of people who were told facts. They were shown evidence that were verifiable, but contradicted deeply held beliefs they had. Core value, something that was close to their identity. And what they found was that the amygdala, the part of your brain that kind of gets activated when you face a physical threat, this is the thing that uh, causes you to have a fight or flight response in your brain to you for your safety. That same part of your brain lights up when you are met with evidence that directly contradicts a core belief you have. You either want to fight it and argue with it, or you want to run from it and ignore it like it doesn't exist. You want to completely deny it. And it's really important that it be a value that's deeply held. It has to be something that's core to your identity. Like, for example, most of us have been told that the common house fly only lives for 24 hours. Have you heard that before? Fly only lives for 24 hours. Okay, that's not true. House flies can live up to about a month. Most of them live about a month. Now, when I told you that... You didn't react emotionally to that. You thought, that's kind of cool information. I could pull that out at a party sometime. That's great. Nor are you upset at any point if I told you that the uh, goldfish does not have a short-term memory of three seconds. They have a memory up to about five months. I don't know where we got three seconds from, but your goldfish can remember a lot more. Once again, you're not emotional. No one goes, fake news! You're not upset about it. Neither if I told you, remember when you were in elementary school and someone told you George Washington had wooden teeth, right? You remember that, right? Well, you may not know this, but the National Museum of Dentistry, you didn't know there was a National Museum of Dentistry, but there is one. They did a laser scan on some of his dentures that we have, and what they found was they're made of a combo of gold, lead, ivory, horse, and donkey teeth. You didn't think I'd say donkey teeth in church, but I did. But once again, you hear that and you think, that's a pretty cool fact. No one's upset to hear about that. No one's emotional. 
But when I say that Washington had another set of dentures, and it consisted of teeth stolen and extracted from the mouths of enslaved human beings, well, now we're a little emotional. Now we're shocked. Now we're a little maybe offended. And maybe we're a little angry, even though this is the only one that I've provided sources for. And there are sources from museums and societies that are recording the history of George Washington. But there's a little bit of anger, a little bit of suspicion. Why did he say that? Why is he bringing that up? What's his agenda? What's he think about America? What's he think about me as an American based on this information? In fact, I almost didn't say this fact because I thought, well, no one's going to pay attention to me the rest of the time that we have anything to speak. We can't get back on track. But I think we're all grown up enough that we can get ourselves back on. But that emotion you felt, that's the backfire effect. That emotion you feel where you start to question, well, wait a second, what is that? What is that supposed to say? What's that supposed to mean? Here's why. We're in a series on the Gospel of Mark, an account of Jesus' life, recorded by an early follower of Jesus who probably was a follower of Peter. He's probably in Peter's circle in Rome, and most of the information he got about Jesus' life came from Peter, who was one of Jesus' closest followers. And so far, what we've been discovering is that Jesus' ministry is about him announcing that God's kingdom has drawn near. That the time has come where God is making things right in this world. And he's doing it through ordinary people who would come alongside him and do life with him. And that you can see the kingdom of God in this man, Jesus. Jesus was declaring himself as the king that God had long promised, or what they called their Messiah, who would come to establish God's kingdom in the world. And he was giving them tons of evidence to prove that this was true. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's doing miraculous signs. And there are these crowds of people who they see it and they're amazed by him. And they can't figure it out. But they're pretty sure this man is from God. No one could do the things he's doing if, if, if he was not from God. No one could do all the signs and wonders if this man was not from God. And eventually, these religious leaders start kind of coming around to try and examine, probably because they're curious, because they see this activity, and they, they probably also think, okay, this is a man of God. He's doing these amazing signs. But they're not ready to call Jesus the Messiah. They're not ready to call him God's king. Why? Well, because a lot of Jesus' teachings and behaviors, they're causing a backfire effect within them for these religious leaders. Two weeks ago, Jason talked about how Jesus healed this paralyzed man. And believe it or not, none of the religious leaders seem to have a problem with the healing. What they have a problem with is just before he heals the man. He says to him, your sins are forgiven. And everyone freaks out. And I don't just think it's this play for power as the way we kind of see it, as these Pharisees are afraid because they have all the control and they don't want anyone else to have it. I think they are legitimately confused about what's going on. Author N.T. Wright points out, he's a scholar of the New Testament, and he, he brings up that 
the Jewish people at this time, they had a way to be forgiven of their sins. It was not weird to be forgiven of their sins. There was just an official protocol you went about. At least once a year, you would go and pilgrimage to Jerusalem, where the temple is. You'd make a sacrifice, and then you would get this kind of official stamp that says, this person's been forgiven of their sins, and you knew you were cleansed before God. And they're legitimately confused. Is Jesus saying they don't have to do the temple thing anymore? Is he just saying he's for, they're forgiven of sins and you don't have to do the temple thing anymore? They're getting frustrated. When they say, who can forgive sins but God, they're actually questioning. It doesn't make sense, it's, and it's a little emotional for them. It would be as if you were going out of the country, and I told you, you know, when you get to the airport, don't bring your passport. When they ask for your passport, just say, hey, I don't need a passport. Nathan told me I'm good. You'd be like, okay, thanks, man. Like, you're not going to listen to it because your thought is, I need the official stamp. I need the thing that says I'm good. And they're thinking, so people are supposed to show up before God on this day of judgment and say, no, I didn't, I didn't make the sacrifice at the temple before the priest. Some Jewish carpenter told me I was good. And they're angry about it because they're thinking, you're leading people away from the thing that can actually save them. Not only that, they see in Mark 2 that Jesus' followers, they don't fast like the Pharisees have taught, you are supposed to fast to be right with God. Also, they don't keep the Sabbath in the same way. Jesus heals people on the Sabbath. And by the tradition of the Pharisees, not the law of God, not what God said, just by their tradition, that was breaking the Sabbath. And they're thinking, there's no Messiah. There's no king of God that would break the Sabbath in this way. And then he calls a tax collector who is the most despicable person. And he says, you can be my follower. You don't have to be this fancy student like all the other rabbis. You follow me. And they're confused. And I don't think in an evil way. I think they're genuinely confused what's happening. The Pharisees see all this and think this can't be God's king. They can't deny that he's doing things that God would do. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. Only God can do those things. But they start to think this does not fit our picture of God and what a godly person does. So no. Then at the end of Mark 3, they end up claiming that Jesus is not from God. They take it even farther. They say he's from Satan. They say it's by the prince of demons that you cast out demons. Which, yeah, doesn't make any sense. But they, they don't know what else to say. They can't deny the fact that the demons are getting cast down. But they go, there's some spiritual power behind this. But look at this dude. This dude ain't from God. It's got to be from Satan. He must be born from Satan. That's his whole thing, and they accuse him of this. And Jesus points out that makes no sense, and then he says to them, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Now that statement right there has caused believers throughout the past 2,000 years to try and figure out what in the world does that mean? What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What is an unforgivable sin that I need to figure this out so I don't ever do it? And I will say, if you're interested in a longer discussion on this, on our YouTube page, we actually have a weekly podcast with Ed and Jason and I, the teaching pastors, and we kind of answer questions from the congregation. This has come in twice. We have answered this twice. It's a pretty common answer. So we have a longer discussion here. But for the sake of what we're discussing today, here's kind of the summary of what Jesus is trying to say to these Pharisees. He's saying, if you reject what God is doing, if you look at the activity of God's Messiah, God's Savior, and you would say that not only is it not okay and it's not good, you go as far as to say it's evil, 
and it's driving people away from God? If you get to a point that you look at the life-saving work of God and you say, I want no part of that. That's not good for me. If you get to a place like that, then you have rejected what God is doing. You miss out on eternal life. You miss out on the forgiving, saving, necessary work of God in your life. And it's not because God's mad at you or that somehow God has rejected you as unworthy. It's because you have rejected God. You have rejected the one who came to save you. Author N.T. Wright writes about this verse and he says, if you end up in a world where it's a drought and there is no water and there is one bottle of water left to save you, the moment you decide you will not drink it because you think it's been poisoned, you have condemned yourself to death. The life-saving power is there and it is available for you to take a drink and to live with that. But the moment you decide that's bad for me, this way of life, this idea, not for me. You have rejected the only life-saving power that you need. And it's not because God is withholding the forgiveness you need or the salvation you need. It's because you have rejected it. You have looked at what was good and life-giving and you say, I don't think I want that. You have called the only one who is good and life-giving evil. And you have rejected it. And it's just after Mark brings up this kind of confusion and hostility and this rejection Jesus facing that he places Jesus' first parable. Most of us probably think of parables like we do fables or moral tales, stories that are designed to teach us a lesson and make us better people. We think Jesus is just doing his own version of the boy who cried wolf. He's teaching people to be more honest or to be more kind and accepting to one another. But scholars like Tim Mackey and Craig Blomberg point out that Jesus is not teaching abstract moral ideas about how to be a good person. But the parables are Jesus explaining his activity in the world. The parables are Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God and about the kind of king he is. Often, we think of the parables as being these catchy and easy to understand stories that explain things about God. But as we saw in our scripture reading today, when Jesus got done with his parable, the disciples couldn't understand it. And when they asked Jesus to explain it, here's what he told them. The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Now that feels even more confusing. Is Jesus saying he's trying to be confusing? Is he saying that he wants some people not to turn and be forgiven? I don't think that's Jesus's point. In fact, Peter, one of Jesus's closest followers and probably the one who told the story to Mark, later writes a letter that says that God's desire is for all people to turn to him. So what is Jesus saying? Well, remember, Jesus is using the parable to explain his activity and ministry to the crowds. And Jesus has just been rejected by the religious leaders as being from Satan. Jesus knows that there are a lot of people who are so dug in on their beliefs of what the Messiah and the kingdom of God should be like that they're ready to reject any evidence that contradicts their beliefs. Most of the people in Jesus' day believed the Messiah would be a political or military leader who would establish an earthly kingdom of God in Israel. Well, the only way for this kind of kingdom to come is through building a movement and an army and getting some resources to fight the Romans. The Pharisees certainly believed that the Messiah, 
since he was God's chosen king, would perfectly fit into their religious worldview. And Jesus did not fit any of that model of a Messiah. And he needs to confront the people of Israel's deeply held values and core beliefs about him and life in his kingdom. And Jesus didn't need research on the human brain to understand how the amygdala works. 2,000 years before we had the concept of the backfire effect, Jesus knew that he couldn't directly confront the assumptions people had about the Messiah and the kingdom of God. Why? Because people would have just dug deeper in on their own assumptions. As scholar Klein Snodgrass points out, direct communication is important for conveying information, but learning is more than information intake, especially if the learner is someone who already thinks they understand People entrenched in their current understanding set their defenses against direct communication. In other words, direct communication gets perceived as a threat and our fight or flight kicks in. Snodgrass continues, but indirect communication finds a way in through the back window to confront a person's view of reality. A parable's ultimate aim is to draw in the listener to awaken insight, to stimulate the conscience and move to action. Jesus' parables are prophetic instruments used to get God's people to stop, reconsider their way of viewing reality, and change their behavior. Stories are a form of indirect communication. We get sucked into the narrative. We picture ourselves in the story. and We can actually imagine a different kind of life. And Jesus is trying to confront people's ideas about God and the Messiah and life in the kingdom of God but do so in a way that doesn't cause people to put their defenses up. But still, Jesus knows there will be some people, like most of the Pharisees, who are so entrenched in their beliefs that the parables will sound like nonsense. They will hear but not understand. But occasionally, a person will hear, and they might not understand all that Jesus is teaching, but they will catch a glimpse of God's kingdom, and they will be drawn to Jesus. So Jesus tells his disciples in Mark 4, consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And Jesus is talking about understanding here. He's saying the person who leans into Jesus's view of the kingdom will get to see more of it. And one day they'll fully understand it because they'll be living in it. But Jesus knows there are some people in the crowd who don't want to perceive the kingdom. They don't want to understand Jesus. They want to be fooled. So let's walk through this uh, first parable that Jesus taught. We already heard it in our scripture reading, but I'm going to look at the part where Jesus actually explains what it means to his disciples. So Jesus says the parable is... A farmer goes out to scatter some seed, and Jesus explains, the farmer is sowing, the, the seed that he sows is the word. And what he means by the word is the message of God, the message of the kingdom of God. Now, if every parable is explaining Jesus and his work, who is the farmer? That was not a riddle, but yeah, uh, Jesus is the farmer, and he's explaining his ministry of spreading the seed of God's kingdom in the world. The ministry is not just what Jesus is teaching, and I, I think we need to get that. We're not just talking about what Jesus is teaching, we're talking about how he lives. We're talking about what he does, who he heals, 
when he heals them, right? This healing on the Sabbath, how he heals them, who he interacts with, how he treats them, the people he chooses to be his disciples. All of this is the good news of the kingdom. And Jesus is telling this parable to explain why some people get what Jesus is doing and accept it, and other people are just rejecting it. And his point is that someone rejecting the message does not say anything about the messenger. And it doesn't say anything about the message. It's about the soil of the person's heart who is receiving the message. So Jesus explains to his disciples, some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. So these are the people that Jesus is talking about who write him off as crazy like many of his brothers and sisters did, we find out later in Mark. Or the people who call him demon-possessed like the religious leaders have just done. These are people who, whose hearts and minds are so set in stone. They're so entrenched in their beliefs and their worldview and how God should do things and what God, how God would act that when they see Jesus, they outright reject it. And Jesus says it's actually our spiritual enemy who's at work in that, who's, who's trying to destroy the work of God. Then he continues, Others are like seeds sown on rocky places. They hear the word, and at once they receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. These are people and they see something beautiful in Jesus. They're, they're drawn to him and maybe they hear his teaching and, and it starts to kind of sink in for a little bit, but then life gets hard. Or maybe following Jesus gets a little more difficult or maybe there's more of a commitment from him than they really expected or he calls them to do something or to give up something or to give something that they say, well, no, the wall is up. And at first it looks like the soil, the heart is soft, but then eventually there's just this brick wall that says, let's not ever talk about that again. Don't bring that up to me again. I'm staying where I'm at. He continues, still others, like seeds sown among thorns, they hear the word, but then the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and they choke the word, making it unfruitful. These are people, maybe, who see Jesus and they say, oh, I think that's the, king, that's the king of God right there. But he's living among the poor. He's washing the feet of people. That's a servant's role. He's hanging out with despicable people. Or maybe they hear Jesus say to the rich young ruler, if you want eternal life, sell all you own and go give it to the poor. And then greed steps up. Or maybe they get a little worried of life. Or as it happens for us, schedule got a little busy. Life got a little busy. Some other desire comes in and eventually what God was producing gets choked out in our life. All of us, I think, have had a season or two in our life where that's been true. God was doing something. It was blossoming. It was working. And then something else just happened. Something just happened. And for whatever reason, it choked out what God was doing. And Jesus says, some people, others, and they're like seeds sown on good soil. They hear the word, they accept it, they produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. And what Jesus is trying to do is he wants his audience, these crowds that are listening to him and following him around, and maybe you and I, to start to question, what kind of soil am I? Why is it I can't get fully on board with Jesus? I like some things and I kind of go a little 
further into the kingdom and then God keeps bringing this thing up or they keep saying this thing in church or they keep calling me to take this step or someone, I feel God calling me to do something and the wall comes up. The defense comes up. The backfire effect is in full effect. Why is it that so many people are so often confused or offended or angry about the way Jesus does his ministry? See, Jesus is not only explaining what he's doing, he is calling them to question their own ideas and deeply held values and beliefs and not just about God and what God should do, not just about God's kingdom and the way it should go, about life in general, about what makes a good life, what makes it pleasing. He wants them to question this because if you cannot let go of those things, you will never take hold of Jesus. And I don't want us to miss this opportunity for us to do the same thing, to pause and reflect on this parable. So I've asked Steve to come out and lead us into time of reflection on this parable. Jesus' desire is for anyone who wants it to find new and eternal life in his kingdom. But the truth is, not all of us want uh, this kind of life in the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. And we don't want our life under the rule of King Jesus. Um, just like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, many of us carry around some kind of idea in our mind of what God or Jesus should be. And we say things like, I can't believe in a God who would, and fill in the blank, or if I were God, I would. Or we have a dream or a desire or some kind of life that we want to live. And life under Jesus' rule, well, it just might challenge that dream. And if we're not careful, these things will cause us to see but not perceive, like the parable says, to hear and not understand. So this morning, we just want to take some time to invite God just to break down whatever values or whatever beliefs that we might be holding on to that's keeping us from seeing him and seeing his kingdom. So in just a moment, uh, we're going to see, again, the four types of soil or people that Jesus described in his parable, uh, and they'll be on the screen. And I just want to give you some time in the quiet just to invite God to reveal to you what, what kind of person am I? Read over those descriptions and ask that. What, what keeps me from being whatever you want me to be? What keeps me from going where you're leading? What keeps me from experiencing the kind of life that you want me to have? And as we always say, you know, you don't have to fake anything here. And if you're just, you don't have to try to manufacture some kind of mystical experience or get some kind of grand revelation out of this. But just be still and be quiet and invite God to give you ears to hear and eyes to see what he's trying to tell you this morning. So let's take a few minutes, talk to God, and may all who have ears to hear and eyes to see understand God's good and pleasing will.
Heavenly Father, I ask that you would soften our hearts so that we may be good soil that allows your word to sink deep within us. Open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, and open our life so that we may follow you wherever it is that you lead. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So throughout the accounts of Jesus' life, we see him telling these parables. And these stories are just glimpses into a new world that is surprising. It's almost counter. It's upside down from the way this world currently operates. Jesus tells of a kingdom where people don't get what they deserve. They get better. When he explains why he hangs out with these despicable sinners and tax collectors, he's asked, why are you doing this? He tells a story of a father who forgives and welcomes and tearfully embraces this rebellious and despicable son who squandered his, his father's wealth. And we miss sometimes how offensive this was to them. This was something this rebellious, this ugly to your father could result in capital punishment under their law at this time. And his father just wipes it away like it doesn't matter. He describes the kingdom as a king who's going around forgiving the debts of the people who owe him the most and expecting that those he forgives will go around and they'll forgive the debts of other people. And you got to remember that the Jewish people at this time are thinking this is going to be a physical kingdom and government and they have to wonder what kind of economy can run that way? What kind of world could operate where people just don't ever have to pay back what they've done wrong? They don't ever have to pay it back? What, what kind of kingdom could run like the vineyard owner in one of Jesus' parables who pays a guy who works from eight to five the exact same that he pays a guy who works for an hour and a half? How are you going to keep good employees that way? How are you going to keep people that way? It is upside down. This is not the way the world operates. But Jesus says this is what the kingdom of God looks like. And Jesus knows some people hear this and it's offensive to them. They think it's never going to work. They're going to hear this message of forgiveness and people getting better than they deserve. And they will outright reject it. It is weakness. It is foolishness. It's not fair. And neither is the cross. See, what Jesus knows is that if you cannot see the upside-down kingdom of God, if you cannot see the beauty of His kingdom, you will never fully understand the cross of Jesus. Maybe it'll become some kind of get-out-of-jail-free card for you. Or maybe it'll just be God's anger turned in on himself. But if you hear the parables and something in your heart gets pricked, something in you comes alive, if you can imagine the beauty of a life where you not only receive the love and forgiveness and generosity of God, which is what we all like about it, right? My sins get forgiven. God blesses me. But I can actually see the beauty of that. I would share that with the people who have wronged me the most. If you could see how beautiful that kind of world could be, you are not far from the kingdom. And Jesus is trying to stir the hearts of these people, but first he has to break their hearts. First he has to break them out of their old worldview of how the world should work and how God should do things and how my life should be and what I should be allowed to do and not be allowed to do. Author Robert Farrar Capone wrote, For Jesus, the parables were not used to explain things to people's satisfactions. Amen. But to call into question all of their previous explanations and understandings of how the world worked. 
far from being illustrations that illuminate what people have not yet figured out, the parables are designed to pop every circuit breaker in your mind. You mention Messiah and the disciples pictured an armed king on horseback. You mention forgiveness and they start setting up rules about when it should run out like Peter did. From Jesus' point of view, the sooner their misguided minds had the props knocked out from under them, the better. After all their yammer about how God should or shouldn't run his own operation. You ever had that conversation with God before? Here's what you should do. Here's how things should go. After all their yammer of how God should or shouldn't run his own operation, getting them to just stand there with their eyes popped open and their mouths shut would be a giant step forward. Maybe the best thing a parable can do for us is to get us to drop all of our preconceived ideas and notions of who Jesus is, what God is like, what the kingdom is, what I thought my life was going to be like, what I thought marriage was going to be like, what I thought relationships were going to look like, what I thought parenting was going to look like, what I thought my business was going to be. For us to just stand there and take Jesus on his own terms. Maybe we don't know all we think we know. At the end of Mark 4, after Jesus tells all these parables, I think Mark very purposely puts this as the last story in, in, the, in this chapter, chapter 4. Jesus calming a storm. Many of you may have already know this story, but if you don't, the disciples are crossing the, uh, this lake with, with Jesus in the back of the boat. And while they're doing it, this squall comes up. It's called a furious squall. It's this raging storm. It's so bad that these seasoned fishermen, who many of the disciples were, are terrified they're going to lose their life. And some of you already know this. What is Jesus doing in the back of the boat? He's sleeping. And so what do the disciples do? They run to the back of the boat and they go, Master, don't you even care? They don't start and go, hey, there's a storm. They start with, we know you see the storm, even though you're asleep. Do you even care? Jesus, don't you know the world's in chaos right now? What are you doing? Jesus, don't you see what's going on in our country right now? What are you doing? Jesus, don't you see how my life is? My family is? My kids are? My marriage is? Do you even care? Jesus wakes up. He just walks to the front of the boat and with a simple phrase, calms the whole storm. He's in complete control. And the last verse of Mark 4 where he's been talking about all these parables and these understandings, it's just this phrase. The disciples look and they stare and they say, who is this man? Who is this? We thought we had him figured out. Who is this man? Maybe that's the best place to stand and end today. Standing with your eyes popped open and your mouth shut. Who is this man? What kind of a king is this? What kind of king washes the feet of rebels and traitors who are just about to end his life and he forgives their debts? What kind of ruler invites beggars and those with nothing to offer him into his feast to share with others? What kind of God would lay down his life for me? Can we just stand in awe of this king? Can we just marvel at the beauty of a kingdom where all things are made right? 
And the most hard-hearted, despicable people who have done so much damage to themselves and everyone they've ever loved, like me, can join in the generosity and joy and patient, gentle, humble love of God. And it is all because of the life and the death and the resurrection of a poor Jewish carpenter who was God in the flesh. Who is this man? That's the question we all have to wrestle with again and again. Especially if you're not sure you believe all we do. And maybe you've been hanging around for a while and something is drawing you here. And you don't know why. You're not even sure you believe all we do, but then every Sunday morning you wake up and you find yourself walking into this building and you don't know why. You're making plans the night before to come to church. You don't even like church. And you're walking in. Who is this man? You can't stop thinking about what you've heard. It's like a little pebble in your shoe. It just keeps following you around. You can't stop thinking about it. Most importantly, you probably can't stop thinking about the people that you've met. It's like everything's upside down. Here's the truth. If you haven't gone to Next Step Center yet, can I just say you're missing out? Can I just say, God is not calling you to hear some stories about Jesus. He's calling you to life with him and with others. And you are invited into that life here with us. So would you go to Next Step Center today? Would you sign up for Next Steps class and just say, I just want to take one more step forward. But maybe you've been to Next Steps. Maybe you've been around here a long time. And you have made no decision about Jesus yet. You've made a decision about this community already. You love it here. You love the people that you've met here. You have not made a decision about Jesus yet. And every time someone pushes you on something, every time someone talks to you about it, every time someone talks to you about something going on in your life, your defenses go up. The backfire effect comes into play. And every time you just keep pushing back, and you don't even know why, but it's happening. Because if Jesus is God, if he is king, then maybe that feels like a threat to some things you hold very dear in your life. Can I say to you, at some point you have to make a decision about Jesus? You should know the things you love about this community, the people that you love here, those things are only true because Jesus Christ is King. They're only true because of King Jesus. And he has invited you into life with him in his kingdom. But you have to make a decision to take a step. So can I just challenge you today? Would you talk to God about that? I want to give you a few moments to do that. And so I've asked Steve to come out and lead us to the cross through the meal of communion. Let's do that.